But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not, is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised, that's the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. And so, Lord, bless now the reading and the preaching of your word of this very rich passage that you wrote through your servant, the Apostle Paul. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you need to know that here at New Life, when we look at the Bible, we see the Bible not as a bunch of disconnected stories with various lessons on how to improve our lives. We see the Bible as one story, amen? with one overarching storyline that features one hero from beginning to end. You could trace the arc of the Bible's storyline like this. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation is all the good that God originally intended for his creation. The fall is how things got messed up and what's wrong with humanity. Redemption is how God acted in space and time to reverse the whole trajectory of things and win back a people for himself. And restoration, well, that's how it's all going to play out in the end. When God makes all things new and reclaims his original intent for all of his creation. That's the plot line that is played out in the Bible from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. And to me, what's interesting is that here in the book of Romans, and especially the first eight chapters, we see that, sta- that same storyline, a microcosm of it. We see it in miniature form. In Romans 1, we saw Paul introducing God, the creator, the God who made all things, the creator who is good and who is holy. Beginning in verse 17 of chapter 1, Paul showed then where things began to go wrong. So creation and then the fall of mankind and how human beings collectively suppressed and pushed down the knowledge of God. Remember that? They decided they didn't want God ruling over them and they ended up trading God in for gods of their own making. 
And then for the next nearly three chapters in this book, Paul methodically builds a case that no matter if you're a religious Jewish person or an irreligious pagan Gentile person, everybody without exception is in trouble with God. And he lays out charge after charge after charge, and he shows that everyone has broken God's law. No one lives up to God's righteous standard. And finally, in chapter 3 and verse 19, it kind of reaches this climax where it's as if the whole world is standing before the judgment bar of God, charged with high crimes and misdemeanors, convicted of cosmic treason against our Creator, and there we're finally given the chance to stand up and offer our defense. And you know what? Crickets. There's absolutely nothing that humanity can say in our defense. We're all as guilty as sin before God, and we know it. So creation and then fall, but then these two glorious words appear at the beginning of the section we're looking at today. You see the first two words? What are they? But now. And that signifies a turning point here. But now. And those are sweet, sweet words. And with those two words, it's as if the, a shaft of sunlight pierces the courtroom and a ray of hope dares to rise within the collective heart of humanity. Remember, the gavel was about to fall. The verdict was about to be finalized. The judge was ready to pronounce the sentence of eternal death on all of humanity. But these words, but now, ring out. And suddenly, against all odds, there's hope. Hope for humanity. Hope for mankind. Hope for redemption. Yes, we had suppressed the truth about God, but now... That same God has blown our minds by coming to forgive and take away our guilt and save us. Yes, we traded God in for false gods, foolishly worshipped the creation rather than the creator, but now God has acted in human history to take away our idolatry and our sin. Yes, both rule-keeping Jews and rule-breaking Gentiles had miserably failed to meet God's standards, but now... Paul says, God came to provide what they had needed all along, righteousness, righteousness, a perfect record of righteousness. And that, by the way, is the theme of this section of these 11 verses, righteousness. Now, that's not a word we use that much in our culture these days, so let me try to unpack it a bit and, and show how righteousness actually functions in our lives. And I heard Tim Keller offer a working definition of this word, a working definition of righteousness that I think is really helpful. He called righteousness a, listen, a validating record of performance that opens doors. A validating performance record that opens doors. And when you think of it like that, then righteousness is really something we're all pretty familiar with. For example, if you want to go get a job with a certain company, as part of the application process, you're going to be asked to provide them with a validating record of your performance, which we call a resume. A resume. 
And that's what your resume is. It is a record of your performance in the working world that shows all of your accomplishments and all of your experience. And you hope that that record will validate you as worthy to be accepted into that position that you're applying for, right? You're hoping that that record will open that door to that position. In that sense, your resume functions as your righteousness. Or let's say you want to get a degree in higher education. So you apply to a graduate school. And of course, they have an admissions process, right? And as part of that process, you're going to be asked for a record of your academic performance to validate you as one who's worthy to be accepted into their program. And so we call that record your transcripts, your grades. And it represents the basis of your hope for getting in and being accepted into that program. And so in that sense, it functions as your righteousness, your validating record of performance that opens the door in the world of academics. Does this make sense? Nod your head if it kind of makes a little sense. Okay. Well, this is how it works in the world. But not just in the vocational world, not just in the educational world. This is how things work in life. Because we come to an understanding very early on in our lives that we'd better have some sort of righteousness that validates us as worthy of being accepted, that makes us feel like we fit in and like we matter. And so even at a young age, we strive for things like making the team, or being smart, or playing an instrument, or being good at art, or getting noticed because of our appearance, or being clever, or funny, or learning to do tricks, or winning at stuff. These are not bad things, not at all. They're just things that we think will validate us, will make us feel like we belong, like we're worthy. Knowingly or unknowingly, we all strive for righteousness. We've all longed to have righteousness in our lives since we were very little. We all look to something or someone to convince our hearts that we're worthy of being here, that our lives mean something. Let's say it another way. We're all seeking to justify our existence in this world. It's interesting that in this passage, the word righteousness or justice is mentioned four times and Some form of the word justify is also mentioned four times. And while those English words sound different, in the original language, they're all the same word. To be justified is to be seen as just, to be viewed as just, as righteous. You've probably heard justified is just as if I'd never sinned, right? So another way to say that we all seek righteousness is to say we're all seeking to be justified, to justify our existence here somehow, to have a good reason for being alive. There was an American film producer named Sidney Pollack who made a bunch of movies, and some of them were even decent. In his later years, as he got older, he had some health issues that started to overtake him, but But even though he was kind of deteriorating and failing, he continued to drive himself to continue making more and more and more movies, even to his own detriment. And when his friends expressed concern over that, and why don't you slow down, why don't you take it easy, you've made enough movies, 
he was heard to reply this, I need to make more movies because that's the only way I can justify my existence on the earth. It's what I do. And if I don't have that, who am I? Bless you. People seek to feel justified in many ways. Starts when we're really young, but as we get older, we can shift from those earlier ways of seeking validation to new ones. New ones that we hope will work better in an adult world, right? Like being seen as a high achiever, like climbing the ladder of success at work, like making lots of money or having nice things. Some people look to, to being in the right social circles or dressing stylishly or having a stunning spouse like I do, or having a picture-perfect family. Still, other people seek to find their righteousness in being perceived as, as intelligent or as witty. I know people who desperately want others to see them as very cultured and refined people who are well-traveled and have experienced a lot of different things in life. That's their righteousness. Going back to family, I'd say that a fair number of parents, maybe you've been here and I know I've been here, have sought to find their justification in their kids and how their kids are turning out and the accomplishments of their children. So they center their lives around their children thinking that that's loving to their kids, but it's actually not loving, is it? If, you, if a parent, you center your whole life around your kids and seek to find your justification in them, it's actually damaging to your kids. And it's not loving. It's actually selfish because it's really all about you personal validation and how about churchy type people (laughs) churchy types you know how many of us seek to find our righteousness in being viewed as a good christian who has it all together and doesn't do bad stuff listen the consistent testimony of both our life experience and the scriptures is that everybody is seeking justification Everybody is seeking righteousness. We all have this need to have something in our life that makes us feel good about ourselves, that makes us feel validated, worthy. And uh, I got to thinking about this. This comes out a lot in movies, doesn't it? I think of Uncle Rico in Napoleon Dynamite. What was his righteousness, do you remember? Remember him sitting there on the front porch with Kip? And he's like, yeah, they're eating steak, remember? And it's like, yeah, back in 82, I used to be able to throw a pigskin a quarter mile. And he picks up that steak and heaves it at Napoleon, slaps him right in the face. Remember that? What was Rico's righteousness? It was the fact that back in the day, he tore it up on the football field, at least in his own mind. I think of one of my favorite movies, Chariots of Fire. And the sprinter, the Olympic sprinter, Harold Abrahams, who was portrayed in that movie, and that one scene where he's thinking about his next race, and he says, he's kind of in this introspective, brooding kind of a mood, and he says, I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what I'm chasing. I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my entire existence. Will I do it? This is universal. Human beings really do want validation. We really do want to feel that we're justified in being here. And when it comes to God, when it comes to our Creator, the fact is we all 
need righteousness. We all need a validating record of performance that meets his standard if we're ever going to be in right standing with God. But we've got to be honest, right? Our own righteousness, our own moral resume isn't enough. It's not going to cut it with God. It falls short. So what we really need as human beings is a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves. So that's why in Romans 3.21, Paul, I think, excitedly declares that now, now that Jesus has come, there's good news for all of us, and it's this. God has made his own righteousness available, and he's made it available to all people. His own validating performance record, his own resume, his own transcripts, his own straight-A report card of absolute perfection, he decided to make his record available to human beings and get this as a gift. It's free. It's free. You can't earn it. And so now that with, as, with that as a backdrop, let me read this first section again, perhaps now with a bit more understanding. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is the good news. This is the exceedingly awesome news that overwhelms the horribly bad news of our collective guilt before God as a race. This is what's got to be believed at a heart level to become a Christian. Only Christians believe this, and all Christians believe this. That God, through the life, death, and resurrection of his son Jesus offers humanity his righteousness so that we can be justified, we can be declared not guilty, so that we can have a right standing before God. And Christians are those who've received that offer. Towards that end, that more of us here tonight that more of us in this room would become true Christians. Let's look at how Paul here lays out nine glorious truths about the resurrection, that, or excuse me, not the resurrection, about the righteousness that God accepts. Nine truths about the righteousness that God accepts and how to receive it. And this is so good. So first, the righteousness that God accepts comes from God what it says a righteousness from God comes from him this performance record that makes us acceptable to God does not come from within us Paul is saying instead it comes to us from the outside from another source from another realm this is why some theologians call this alien righteousness it means it comes from from somewhere else not from within us it's a status that's bestowed on us by someone else, namely God himself. It comes from him. It comes from God, number two. It's apart from our moral performance. Amen? Apart from law. 
This is what sets Christianity apart, guys. This is what makes Christianity unique among all the world religions. This righteousness is not something that humans can earn by being good. This is not the righteousness of rule keeping. That doesn't work because no one has perfectly kept God's rules. And as we learned last week, obeying God's law wasn't ever meant to be a path for earning righteousness. God's law was meant to be a mirror that human beings hold up in front of themselves that show them their need, their true condition. It was meant to drive us to God to seek a righteousness that comes from Him. Now, yes, once we know Christ, God's law can then function like a a picture or a portrait of, of the life that pleases God. It can show us how to live, but it can't empower anybody to live that way. The power comes as Abby mentioned earlier, from the Spirit of God who dwells within Christian people. And those are those who have received the righteousness of God apart from their own effort. So this righteousness comes from God. It's apart from our moral performance, apart from the law. Third, it's predicted in the Old Testament. It says it's apart from the law, but the law and the prophets testify to it. And so I think here, Paul wanted his readers to know that this has always been the plan. It's not new. Always been the plan. Predicted in ages past, every one of God's divine laws, every message delivered by one of God's ancient prophets was meant to point people to seek a righteousness outside of their, themselves. Seek a righteousness, righteousness that comes from God. And then fourth, we see that it is obtained only by faith comes through, Paul says, faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, amen. This is absolutely crucial to understand, isn't it? This is what launched the Protestant Reformation 501 years ago. Through reading Romans, through reading this, Martin Luther came to the dawning realization that God's Righteous record comes only to those who forsake their reliance on their own efforts, who throw their own moral report card into the trash and run to Jesus. Only those who by faith gladly receive Jesus' performance record as their own, only those are those who are saved. Remember, it's apart from the law, apart from our performance. It can only be received as a gift by faith. That's why only humble people can become Christians. The old verse says, Nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I cling. That's it. That's saving faith. Number five, this righteousness from God is offered without discrimination. He's impartial. He offers it to everyone, to all who believe, it says. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what he's saying here is that everybody on the planet is equally in need of God's righteousness. Why? Because everybody has sinned. Sure, some people commit worse sins than others. But listen, how many laws do you have to break to be a lawbreaker? 
Just one, according to James 2.10. I've talked to a lot of people about this through the years, and most people are very ready, willing, and eager to consign someone like Adolf Hitler to hell. They're like, yeah, he deserves to go to hell. And Stalin, and Pol Pot, and Saddam Hussein, and serial killers, and evil people who sell drugs to children. Yes, they should all be judged severely by God. But you know what? The average person tends to place themselves in a totally different category, right? Deserving of a different fate than those monsters. And certainly God is just and God is fair. We, we understand that. But again, the truth is that all have sinned. Maybe not in the same way and maybe not to the same degree, but all still fall short of God's mark. So maybe this illustration will help, and you've heard it before. I've been to the Grand Canyon. Some of you have as well. It's beautiful. Suppose everybody who has ever lived was standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon for a long jump contest. That's going to be a long jump. Of course, the best long jumper in the world would be there, right? I don't know. What is the longest long jump in the world? Anybody know? 20 feet, 30 feet? He would be there, but also the guy who's in the wheelchair who can't jump one inch would be there as well, and everybody in between with abilities in between. One by one, each person takes their position and prepares to run and leap off the edge and try to reach the other side. And one by one, they each go tumbling down into the ravine, leaving spots all over the floor of the canyon. No doubt, some would have gotten a little further out than others, but everyone falls far, far short of the mark. That's the picture here in verse 23. God has established the standard, and it's himself. It's his own perfect righteousness. That's the mark. And so even though some people don't murder and rape and pillage, everyone without exception still falls far short of his mark. So all human beings are idolaters by nature. They all worship things other than God by nature. Every single human being who's ever lived needs the righteousness of God. And amazingly, Paul's telling us here, he offers it to everyone. Jew or Gentile, black or white. Rich or poor, Democrat or Republican. Everyone who puts their full faith in his son, Jesus. And get this, number six, this righteousness is given freely as a gift of grace. Justified freely by his grace. Free justification. Free. That validation we've all been looking for, the sense of worthiness we all crave, the approval, the acceptance. The blanket pardon of all of our sins, the canceling of our sentence, all free. No wonder Christians sing songs about the grace of God. And listen, it's more than just forgiveness. This is actually being pronounced righteous. It's one thing to have your sins pardoned. It's another thing to be counted as righteous in God's sight. It's being given a new status. It's being told, you now measure up. You now measure up. It's God treating you as if you had performed just like Jesus had performed. How good is that? That's grace. It's God 
giving those who put their complete trust in Jesus a new righteous status they don't deserve. That's what grace is. That old acrostic that I've mentioned several times says it well. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And right there, that tells us something we need to know, that this righteousness is indeed free, but it is not inexpensive. It cost us nothing to have, but it cost Jesus everything to purchase for us. And that's number seven. It required a great price through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Redemption, that word, was a word that meant to pay a ransom price to free a slave, to purchase someone's freedom out of slavery. That's what redemption means. And that is what Jesus did for his people. What kind of love is that? What kind of foreign, otherworldly love would do that for people who were sinners? Jesus paid the price in blood to purchase my freedom from sin's mastery, my freedom from guilt, my freedom from judgment, my freedom from hell, and to procure for me his own righteousness. Wow. Why doesn't everybody want to be a Christian? Now get this too. All this was for us, but it wasn't only for us. In fact, before it was for us, it was for someone else. Some Christians like to go deep. Does anybody like to go deep? Four of you, okay. Well, all five of us are going deep right now. This is deep. I'm going to be a little provocative here. Let me ask you this. Did Jesus Christ die primarily for you or did he die primarily for God? What do you think? Some of you are like, Jesus dying for God? Why did God need to be died for? He didn't have any sins. I believe the Apostle Paul would contend that yes, Jesus died for us. He just told us this, but I think he would tell us that before Jesus ever died for you, he first died for his father. And that's point number eight. He vindicated God's reputation. It says he did this to demonstrate his, dust, his justice. Let me explain. You see, for millennia, there was a huge problem in the universe, a cosmic conundrum. I just made that up. Isn't that cool? There was a cosmic conundrum in the universe. It was a massive tension that all of the universe ached to resolve. What was it? Here, here's what it was. How in the world can a righteous God forgive human sin? How could God just say, I forgive you, and not punish sin severely on the spot? How is that being righteous? People may not have felt it, but that was a problem, a huge problem for the universe. For those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, think about the sins that people in the Old Testament committed. Can you think of any? Didn't Noah get drunk? Didn't Abraham tell lies? Didn't Jacob deceive? Didn't Judah commit fornication? How about David? King David. 
commits adultery with Bathsheba, then arranges to have her husband murdered by putting him on the front lines of the battle so that he could take her as his own wife. He, he, he committed adultery, and then he committed murder to cover it up. After covering it up for a year, David was confronted, and he finally repented. And you know what? God forgave him, says Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. And that's crazy when you think about it. Hey, God, I thought the wages of sin was death. I thought you were a righteous judge. Shouldn't you have sent a lightning bolt to strike David and reduced him to a pile of smoldering ashes right in that moment? How could you let him off the hook like that? Any human judge who did that would be removed from the bench immediately. It's not right. Fact is, God forgave billions and billions of sins before the time of Jesus. How could a righteous God do that? God, you see, had a massive PR problem. His integrity was in question because for centuries he had seemingly not followed through on administering justice, on paying the wages of sin. He hadn't sufficiently punished people for what they had done. So the dilemma facing the universe was, how could God's name be vindicated? How could God's justice be demonstrated? That had haunted the universe for millennia. And Paul says the answer that resolves that tension is found in Jesus' sacrifice. Verse 25, God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Listen, he did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. David's sins, Abraham's sins, Jonah's sins. Verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So what's the answer to the question, who did Jesus die for? Certainly, yes, he died for us, but in a very real sense, even though it sounds weird, Jesus also died for God, his Father. As an infinite being, Jesus, in those excruciating hours hanging on that cross, took the infinite punishment that all of us deserve for our many sins, and that a holy God had to mete out that justice if he's going to clear his name. He did it to demonstrate his justice, it says. So it was the gruesome death and eternal suffering of the Son of God that enabled and continues to enable God the Father to forgive and justly justify every single person who puts their full faith in Jesus Christ. That's pretty deep. That's deep stuff, isn't it? By the way, that little phrase, sacrifice of atonement, he presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. This is rich. Some versions translate it propitiation. Believe it or not, your eight-year-olds know what that is if they're in our kids' life ministry or in Awana clubs. Propitiation. There's another word nobody uses these days. It has two meanings, two connotations. It means satisfier and wrath remover. Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross was the only thing that could fully satisfy the justice of God in forgiving human sin. Nothing else could. And in his suffering and death, he was our wrath remover. Because Jesus absorbed in himself the full, furious, fierce 
wrath of his holy father against all of human sin, he was taking our punishment, amen? Serving our death sentence that we deserved. Now you need to know this idea has become distasteful to some theologians and they've turned away from it. They've called it divine child abuse and they've turned away from propitiation. I say let them call it what they want. It's in here. Paul calls it grace, justifying grace. I call it sacrificial love. Think about it. Let it wash over your soul. God poured out his wrath on his own son so that he could pour out his grace on you. That's a pretty good deal right there. Listen, if you're in Christ, God doesn't have any more wrath left for you. He poured it all out on Jesus. He has no wrath left for you. He judged your sins on a cruel, rugged cross. The cross was the only way God could righteously save sinners like you and me. So I don't know about you, I'm going to gladly receive that. And I'm going to worship Jesus for going through with it. A final aspect of this righteousness of God, number nine, is it gives all true Christians a new ground for boasting. A new ground for boasting. Verse 27, where then is boasting? It's excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. Listen, your righteousness is what you boast in. It's what you're most proud of. It's what you brag about. It's what your confidence is in to justify your existence and make life worth living for you. It's your boast. And Paul says that especially for religious people like the Jews of his day, believing in Christ and trusting in his sacrifice was going to bring an end to their boasting and their religiosity. It's going to end it. And like him, those who believed would begin to boast only in what? He said, I will boast only in the cross of Christ. Only in the cross of Christ. You know, when you step back and think about it, God designed this whole thing. God designed this whole plan in such a way as to do away with human boasting, didn't he? with bragging about our own moral performance or our own religious performance. God arranged it so that no one can boast. It says that over and over again. So that no one can boast. Listen, because of what his son went through, God wants the full credit for your salvation, 100%. And really, that's the truth, isn't it? The only thing I bring to the table is my sin. The only contribution I make to my salvation is my need for it. That's what I contributed, only that. Jesus did all the heavy lifting for me and for you. So Paul says that God the Father sent his son Jesus to come to earth and suffer and die on a cruel cross for us so that we could now boast in God and glorify God and magnify God. God. Do you do that, by the way? Do you boast in God? The cross demonstrates God's justice. The cross demonstrate, uh, showcases God's grace. The cross of Jesus put God's consistency on display that everyone's saved the same way by faith, whether you're Old Testament saint or New Testament saint, Jew or Gentile. The cross 
is actually a validation of the law of God. Because Jesus paid the penalty that God's law required of lawbreakers. You know, down through the centuries, millions of people have had their eyes opened by God. Millions of people have had their hearts softened by the Spirit of God to see the beauty and the truth of this gospel. And that's how someone becomes a Christian, by having their eyes opened. Amen? They see for the first time. They see their sin, their own sin, for what it really is. Not just as messing up or making mistakes, but as ugly rebellion against God. They see that their plight is serious because they can't do a thing about it. They can't do a thing to change their status with God. They can't do a single thing to atone for all of their past sins. I don't know about you, but if anybody was keeping track, I got notebooks full of sins. Remember September 15th, 1974? No but I'm sure I sinned on that day. People who've come to Christ see that that just promising to try to do better in the future, hey, I'm going to do better and be a better person, is still going to leave them falling short of that mark because it's way out there. And they come to realize they can't pull it off. They come to the dawning realization that they need a Savior, and they're not it. Then they hear a message like this about Jesus. Maybe they hear it in a sermon. Maybe they hear it from a friend over coffee. Maybe a youth pastor at a retreat. Maybe their parents. Maybe they read it in the Bible or in a book and they hear the good news of Jesus' sacrificial death for their sins. And they also hear of his resurrection by which as the living Lord, he can now hear their prayers, their prayer of faith and credit them with his perfect record. So that they can be justified in the sight of God. They hear it and they see it and their defenses crumble. And in a very special moment, a very spiritual moment, they in their heart transfer the full weight of all of their trust from whatever it was in and put it fully on Jesus. They lay it fully on Jesus and his sacrifice. And in that moment, God saves them completely. And he justifies them. He forgives their sin. He pronounces them as righteous as Jesus Christ because they have Jesus' record. And they become Christians. They join the family of God. And then they get baptized because that's the ID card. That's the badge that shows others they mean business. And they start their new journey of following Jesus into the life that he's always wanted for them. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Romans 10.13 says, for whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Pardoned. Pronounced righteous. What I want for you today more than anything else is for you to know that you know that you know that you know down deep in your gut that this is true of you, that you would find your justification, your righteousness only in Jesus. Do you have that confidence? I'm not asking you if you're a church member. I'm not asking you if you were confirmed. I'm not asking you if your parents were religious people. I'm asking if you've ever transferred the full weight of your trust from yourself to Jesus Christ and him crucified 
risen and ascended up into heaven. That's what I'm after. And maybe for someone tonight, this would be the night. This would mark the day of your trust transfer to Jesus Christ, your conversion, your salvation, your being declared righteous in the sight of God, your being forgiven of all of your sins. Wouldn't that be great? Would you bow your heads with me? We're going to partake of the Lord's table here in just one minute. Some small group leaders are coming, but I just want to be attentive to the fact and sensitive to the fact that somebody here tonight may have never yet prayed this prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because everything I've said tonight about salvation and, and receiving God's righteousness can be summed up in that prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And if you've never prayed that before, sincerely, from your heart, with the understanding that you have right now, would you pray it right now? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I receive Jesus. I trust in Jesus. This could be your day. This could be your time to become a Christian, a true Christian.